Uh, you can have a seat, and if you have your uh, Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn uh, with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 21 to 28. Mark chapter 1, 21 to 28. This is the word of the Lord. And they went into, to Caper, into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given your word to show us very clearly that we are lost without Christ, that we are all born in sin, that we are in need of a great salvation, and that in your word you also reveal to us the great Savior whom you sent, your only Son. We pray that as your word is proclaimed now, that I would be faithful to your word and that we all would be faithful to hear your word and be shepherded by it. We pray that you would open up blind eyes and deaf ears, that you would soften hard hearts, that you would comfort those who need to be comforted and warn those who need to be warned. Lord, we pray this, not in our own name, but in Christ's. Amen. It has been said that, um, well, many people have taken a stab at what is a good definition of good preaching. What's a good preacher? What's a good sermon? What should you be aiming to do? It has been said that the aim of preaching, a good preacher is one who afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. Well, not quite. Because as we'll see in Scripture, as you see, as you read Scripture, that there are people who need to be comforted, and they are always to be comforted. And there's people who feel comfortable, and they shouldn't feel comfortable because they are not in right relationship with the Lord, and, they are, they, and their need is that they would be made aware of the terror that they are actually in. And so we see that this is actually part of the problem that Jesus confronts in the synagogue in Capernaum that day, that there is a synagogue that is quite comfortable, not aware of the incredible danger, not that they are about to be in, but they are currently in. They are a church, you could say, that is under the control and influence of Satan, and they have absolutely no idea about this. Our first point is this, a church where Satan is welcome. Now, 
Some of you have heard this story. Some of you have read the Gospels many times. The Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You've heard the story of Jesus' life. So for you, it won't be a surprise that Jesus, the Messiah, when he comes to his people, by and large, they don't like him. But imagine this is the first time you're hearing the story. Maybe this is the first time you're hearing the story. So imagine this is the first time you're hearing this story. You're going to notice a couple of things that are quite shocking and surprising to you. As all good stories go, there's something, there's something startling that happens. You have this setting and then you have all of a sudden something shocking. Some problem happens that you're not aware of or you're, you weren't, you're surprised to find about. And so these shocks or surprises that we find in this, in this piece of scripture, they tell us what Jesus came to do and they tell us who he is. The, the first surprise is this, Jesus' teaching was astonishing. You have a bunch of people who are worshiping the God of the Bible, and then the Messiah of the Bible comes into their synagogue, and they're shocked by his teaching. This is a different type of sermon than they're used to. It's not like they're used to a sermon without laughter, and he preaches to them with jokes, or they're used to a sermon without illustrations, and he gives lots of illustrations. No, this is a completely different sermon than they're used to. And what is the difference between how he teaches and the, one, the way that they're used to? What does he say here? He teaches with, what's the word? Authority. Authority. And specifically, so that we don't, know, we don't miss this, he says, not as the scribes. So different than what they are used to. They don't teach with authority. Now, how did the scribes teach? You don't get all that from this passage, but we have the rest of the book of Mark and Matthew, Luke, and John. We do have an understanding of what the scribes taught. When they taught, the authority of God was not really in view. So they get one of the scribes come up, very similar to what we're doing right now, Bible laid open, although it was a scroll, and they teach. But the authority of God was not really in view at all. They're just giving, uh, they they talk about the traditions of their people, their ancestors, so-and-so said this, well, so-and-so said this, well, then so-and-so said this, and there's really no sense of the authority of God. Scriptures were not their authority. They were just merely discussion starting points. So scripture brings up this topic, and now here's what I think about this topic, and here's what ancestor so-and-so has to think about this topic. Scriptures were not the authoritative teaching. They maybe were just the test of authoritative teaching. They were applying the law of God as if there was no God, as if there was no eternal life. So they felt free to add more and more and more rules. And eventually it just became advice on how to live a good life. The kind of stuff that would be just as good if there was no God. This is what they're used to. Have some man stand up in front of them and blab on for a little while about his opinions or so-and-so's opinions, give us some rules that he thinks that we should follow, and then they're done. But Jesus stands up that day in the synagogue, opens up the word of God, and he teaches as one who had authority. Now, there's two things that the Gospels want us to notice about this. First, Jesus taught as one who had authority, as any good preacher should. And secondly, Jesus taught as one who had authority that only he could, because he was actually God the Son. Let's first focus on teaching 
as one who has authority, teaching with authority as any preacher should. See, this was teaching that they should have had in their synagogues. So there's a way in which Jesus was teaching that they should have always been doing all along. He sh- they should have had their scribes should have stood up and taught with the authority of God. Words from an authoritative God. Preaching is supposed to be God exercising his lovely authority over his people. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 to 11, Peter gives instructions for what life in the church is supposed to be like. 1 Peter 4, verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep, love, uh, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve another, one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks, listen to this, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Preaching and teaching is to be one of the ways that God exercises dominion over his people, even over creation. So whenever we have somebody teaching in the church, we realize we're, we're dealing with an authoritative word of God. They're not to be teaching as if it is advice. Not to be giving their own opinions. These are the words of the king of all creation. These are words that we are to insist that we all hear and respond to. These are words that speak of a king. These are words that establish his reign and they require allegiance to. These aren't the words of a a deistic God who just merely gives rules. Now, if you're not familiar with deism, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> but deism is essentially the, the, uh, the belief that there is a God, he created the world, he gave it a bunch of rules that it, it runs by, and then he sort of just leaves, and then, you know, you better know the rules, otherwise life's going to go badly for you, and if you know the rules, uh, if you know the rules and keep them, then things are going to go well. But he's not really involved. No, this is not the words of Scripture. Scripture speaks of these words as the words of a king who he will bring consequence. He will require his creatures to follow his commands. These are the words of a God who makes decrees. He makes commands. He also makes and keeps promises. Promises to save his citizens. Promises to rescue them. And warnings for anybody who would try to stop that. These are the words of a king with authority. And so how did Jesus teach? If you read the rest of the book of Mark, if you read the rest of the gospels who give more detail about the life of Christ, you'll see that he spoke and taught scripture as though it were the words of a king and kingdom. The words of a king, the words about a king who is coming to rule. The words of a mighty king who is coming to rescue powerfully. The words of a king who is coming to judge. And dear friends, this isn't just the way that Jesus taught Scripture. This is the way that Moses taught Scripture. It's the way that Isaiah taught Scripture. We just went through the book of Isaiah. That's how he taught Scripture. 
It's the way that John the Baptist taught. It's the way that Jesus taught. The Word of God is meant to be taught as the words of God who exercises authority over his people, as the words of a king. Secondly, Jesus taught as one who had authority because he was the only son of God. See, the the authoritative message of godly preachers are on behalf of the actual king. It is a messenger taking an authoritative message from the king to the people. What's different about Jesus? Well, a lot of that's true, except he is actually that king. Moses' words were God's words. God spoke through Moses. But Moses' words were not about himself. They were about God. Jesus' words are his, is God's words about himself. He is the king who has all the authority in heaven and earth. God himself taking on a human body and a human soul. He came to defeat the kingdom of the world. He came to defeat the kingdom of Satan. He came to defeat the kingdom of darkness and to establish his king, his kingdom. He spoke with authority. The way that faithful preachers are to preach is to preach not just spiritual truths, not just spiritual philosophies or sort of spiritual advice. No. Faithful preachers are to preach Christ the king. There is a king. He has come. He exercises dominion and demands obedience. Oh, but he has also died for his church. The scribes did neither of those things. Whatever they were doing, it was not what they should have been doing. Their teaching was not one whereby the king exercised authority over his people. Their teaching wasn't the way that God protected and guarded and comforted and warned his people. The second surprise, so the first surprise is that God's people were shocked when God taught in their church. They weren't used to this. That's a shock. You would expect that this would be the case. The second surprise discovery in that synagogue, what was the second surprise discovery there? The first one is what they didn't find. They didn't find the word of God normally taught there. The second surprise is something that they may not have expected and was there. And what was that? A demon. This is a bit of a shocker if you haven't read the Gospels before. What is happening? Why is there a demon in the church? What is going on? You wouldn't expect this. Jesus is the son of God. He had come to God's people. Now, you'd perhaps expect to find Satan working in the Gentile nations around them. Israel at that time was, was surrounded by nations who had no idea about who the God of the Bible was. And so you'd expect when the Messiah comes, oh, that Satan's work is going to be on the outside the border. Or maybe because they were occupied by the Romans, you'd think, oh, okay, where are you going to find the work of Satan? You're going to have to go to the, the Roman centurion's house, and then you're going to find Satan at work. Or maybe amongst God's people, you might find him, you might find Satan at work in the brothels. But where do we find this demon? In the church, in the church service. The religious leaders were waiting for a Messiah to do some damage to the kingdom of Satan. Oh, we wish the Messiah of Isaiah would come. Oh, we wish he would do damage to the kingdom of Satan. Oh, all those people, they really need to be destroyed. They really need that work. 
which is good. We should want that. But they were convinced that that meant that the evil that the Messiah needed to destroy was outside of Israel. Or maybe if in Israel, the Romans, let's, the Messiah needs to destroy darkness and, and sin in the Romans who are in Israel. Or maybe the non-religious people in Israel, like the tax collectors or prostitutes. The evil-destroying work of the Messiah was not in them, not in their churches, no. And God sets up this event to prove they were wrong. Jesus did not just come to rescue the Gentile nations, the people outside the church from the power of darkness. He came first to the Old Testament church, which was at that time the people of Israel. The Messiah's first job is not to rescue the people from the evil of others. The Messiah's first job is to rescue his people from the evil that was among them. Not only in their land, and not even just in their synagogues, but also in their own hearts. And so we see here these two surprises that Israel synagogues were not used to teaching with the authority of God about the coming king. And also that their synagogues were fine places that Satan liked to be. Teach us that preaching that is not expressing Christ's authority over all people is Satan-friendly preaching. They had lots of Bible, but they missed the point of the Bible. And their places of worship were places where, where Satan was as happy as a pig in mud. Later, they're going to be called synagogues of Satan. John's going to call them that, or Jesus is going to call them that in the book of Revelation. Even though they had lots of Bibles, synagogues of Satan. And they didn't think that they were denying any part of the Bible. But they did not believe the works of Satan were something that they personally needed to be rescued from. And their preachers didn't preach this with authority. Dear church, this isn't just a problem unique to the Old Testament church. Not a problem unique to the Bible people before Jesus came. It remains a problem that we need to be vigilant not to fall into. That we do not treat the word, the church, in the same manner that the leaders did in the synagogues, which were happy places for Satan, in which instead of Satan being forbidden there, in fact, they ended up casting the Messiah out of those places rather than Satan. Jesus Christ is the friend of Christians. He says that very clearly friend of sinners, but he's also the king. If you're a Christian, Jesus is your friend, but he is also your king. If you're a Christian, Jesus is your brother, but he's not your kid brother. He is also your king. He's a brother with authority. He is a friend with authority, and he exercises that authority against the enemies of the church, but he also exercises that authority within the church. And so this begs a question here. What teaching do you want? 
What would you like your pastors to tell you when you get here? Not what would you put up with, but what would you want? Advice? Help? Maybe exercising authority outside the church, maybe confronting all the sin outside of the church, but not maybe within the church. Or do you want preaching that those inside the church are also guilty of rebellion against the authority of God and they are also in need of repentance and forgiveness? Preaching that shows that even those inside the church need forgiveness of their sins and also that Christ is sufficient to to give us that. We learn that actual preaching is dangerous. It's a dangerous thing to do because it is to speak with authority. We learned, Peter tells us, is to speak as speaking the very oracles of God. It's a terrifying thing. James 3 verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We are called to speak with authority, to say, thus saith the Lord. So to be a preacher of the church, a pastor, an elder, is to be held to that standard. Not my own ideas about God. Not what you want me to say about God. Not what, God, what I want to say about God. Not even things that simply don't conflict with God's word. But things that are actually in the word of God. The actual words of the actual king. That is a terrifying thing. But it's an important task, by it, the Bible tells us. And one done faithfully, it is Christ exercising his authority over his church. So it is dangerous, though, to be a church without authoritative teaching. What should you demand from and delight in from your church's teachers? You should require that they preach the Bible's at the Bible as a, a scripture with authority. That through them, Christ is exercising his good authority over the church. Do not let us exercise our own authority, but require that Christ's authority, the word of God, leads this church. And now we're going to see what happens when the king with authority meets a devil in the church. That's our second point. And we'll just label that an embarrassing battle, okay? Let's read verses 23 to 25. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Now, I think what you're going to see here, if you you look at the rest of Scripture, is that this is not Satan's preferred form of duel. Okay, you might be thinking of Hamilton and the duel that he had. And, you know, this is not, if he, he would prefer pistols at noon or at, at, uh, at 20 paces, this is essentially like fighting a shark in the desert. I mean, if you're in the ocean and a shark comes at you, you're toast. If you meet a shark in the desert, it's not a fair fight. It's not the shark's preferred form of combat. If you look at the Old Testament, you'll see that this is true. This is not the ordinary work of the kingdom of evil. If you look in the Old Testament, search for examples of the activity of Satan. Search for activity, see him possessing people, 
You're just not going to find it. There are very, very few examples. And in every case, they were directed directly by God and given permission by God. Very, very few. Almost none. And we see that the power of Satan is actually not a miraculous power. The way he operates is one of influence, of temptation, of pride. His main goal is that you would worship creation rather than the creator. So Satan was very happy to continue his ordinary fight against God. Remember what Jesus calls the Pharisees. He calls them children of their father, the devil, because he was the father of lies. And so why did he say that the the devil was their father? Because they were foaming at the mouth? No, because they were liars. This is his preferred form of combat, making people liars, making people uh, be proud, making people worship anything other than God. Satan's quite happy to be fighting God and God's people in this way. Satan is called the liar. He's also called the accuser of the saints. And this is when people who know the Lord, whose sins are forgiven, when Satan wants them to feel like their sins are not forgiven. You're guilty. God doesn't love you. He can't forgive you. He won't forgive you. You better better work to earn that off. Your sins aren't paid for. What are you going to do? God won't love you. Satan's primary work is lies about God and accusing the saints. Only God has miraculous power. This is not a battle that Satan wanted. He did not want this battle. He hated it. He didn't want people to know he was in the synagogue, for goodness sake. He did a much better job when people didn't know he was there. Yet here, Jesus forces him into a public confrontation to prove something very unique about Jesus. And it was an embarrassing attempt. What does Satan, what does this demon try to do? He identifies Jesus' true identity. Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, you're the Holy One of God. <gasps> Why is he doing this? Well, you might say he's doxing Jesus. He's giving everybody uh, uh, Jesus' identity. Well, there's also, there was also this superstitious belief that in order to control a spirit, all you had to do was say their name. And all of a sudden, you've controlled them. You've put shackles on them. And so you see this demon is trying to work out this whole superstitious belief. And it really doesn't work very well, does it? It's kind of like if, if you heard an old wives' tale that if you play 1v1 against LeBron James and you're wearing green shoelaces, the man won't be able to do anything. And so you've got your shoes and you've got your green shoelaces and you walk up to LeBron and he destroys you. So this is this silly attempt. I'm going to say Jesus' name. I'm going to say where, he, where he's from, Nazareth. I'm also going to say that he's the Messiah. And it absolutely destroys him. I think the other reason is that he's trying to confuse people into thinking that Jesus' power comes from Satan. That they're on the same team. Which explains why Jesus commands the demon to be silent. But I think the main reason, if you look at Jesus' temptation, which we've just read about, right? Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Satan's strategy 
was to make sure this man didn't suffer. That was his goal. Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, all three, make sure this guy doesn't suffer. We want this guy to become king real quick without the cross. That's what we want. Make sure we tempt Jesus into becoming king without the cross. That's what we want. Why would Satan want Jesus to not suffer? Why would he want to tell everybody, that's the Messiah, that's the king, go worship him, make him king? Why would he want that? Isaiah's read Isaiah 50, or Isaiah, Satan's read Isaiah 53. He knows that the way that Jesus would crush Satan is by suffering instead of his people. And so he wants to do everything to get Jesus to not go to the cross. So if he can tell everybody, oh, go worship Jesus, he's the Messiah. Don't, definitely don't crucify him. That's the last thing you want to do. Don't crucify him. He knows that is how he will be destroyed. In fact, Satan was the first person that the gospel was shared with. Did you know that? First time the gospel was ever shared, it was to Satan. Now, of course, it wasn't good news for Satan. But in the garden, after Adam and Eve sinned, God comes and he gives the gospel and he gives it to Satan. He promises that one of Eve's sons will crush him. And in order to crush him, he himself would suffer. He says that one of Eve's sons would crush the head of the serpent and his own heel would be bruised in doing this. Satan knows that he will be destroyed by the Messiah suffering instead of his people. Because if Jesus immediately became king without suffering, if he didn't take the punishment of his people and he just became the king and ruled very righteously and got rid of all of the sinners off of the earth, he would have no citizens he first had to die for their sin. This explains why Jesus would command the demon to be silent. Don't try riling up this crowd to make me king until I have died for their sin. He calls Jesus the Holy One of God, which is true. So far, he's only saying true things. Saint means Holy One. And in, in that way, all of the church, everybody who believes in Jesus is called a saint. Because Christ's death has made you holy. He's washed away your sin. You belong to him. But Jesus is not called a holy one of God. Did you notice that he's called the holy one of God? The one who would save all the others. The one holy one who would make all the other people who belong to him holy. He's the one set apart. He's the one that God picked to do this and to live instead of, on behalf of the church. Dear church, God calls you his saints. If you've repented of sin and trusted in Jesus, rejoice that you are his holy ones, not the holy one. Don't confuse that. It's not your job to go and defeat Satan, to go and rescue yourself. There was one man who was chosen for that, and it wasn't you. That's really good news. But that doesn't mean that your life doesn't matter because we're called to resist the devil's schemes, and we're not unaware of those schemes. And what are his schemes? 
He wants to take your eyes off of the Holy One. He wants you to take your eyes off of Christ. His schemes are idolatry. He wants you to take some of the things that God has given you, and he wants you to treat those things as if they were God. Whether that's money, or health, or sex, or pleasure, or comfort, or peace, or freedom, or the approval of others. That's his scheme. He wants you to be proud. He wants you to trust in your own righteousness, like the Pharisees did. He wants you to think that God will accept you based on your performance, or maybe just with a little bit of help from God. He also wants to accuse you. He would love nothing more than for people whose sins are forgiven to worry that they're not. These are his schemes. And the way that we fight against those is to believe the word of God. Your life matters, although it does not accomplish your salvation. Christ is the Holy One of God. We do not wonder how strong we are to fight against Satan. No, we simply trust the one who did it instead of us. Our third point is this. Christ proved that he's the one who would crush the head of the serpent. Let's look at 26 to 28. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned them among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. A simple command and it's over. There's no effort on Christ's part. He doesn't break a sweat. He doesn't have to offer some secret spell. In fact, when you see these confrontations between Jesus and demons, you notice that Sometimes he does the same thing, sometimes he doesn't. The whole point is that there is not a secret way. The, the thing that is constant is it's him. He is authority. All of Jesus' miracles serve as parables as well. Jesus' miracles were real miracles. They're not merely parables. They're real miracles. These things actually happened. But they also serve as parables. So he gives sight to the blind. He actually did that. He miraculously healed blind people, but it was a parable that he's the Messiah who would open the blind eyes of our heart to see our need of a Savior and that he is the one. He healed the deaf. He gave hearing to the deaf. This is a living parable of the fact that he's the one who's going to give us ears to hear the word of God. He fed the 5,000. He really did with five loaves and two fish. He really did that. That's a miracle, but it serves as a parable that he is the bread of life. That if you have him, you have life, and you have life eternal. This was a miracle that served also as a parable. God controlled Satan and forced him into a battle he did not prefer. It's not a sign that Christians can do exorcisms. No, it is a sign that Christ has defeated Satan. And that the way to be free from his power is not to say words to Satan, but to trust in Christ. Much like the only solution to spiritual blindness is to be in Christ. Now the apostles, the Bible writers, had a similar account with, uh, as, as to what happened with Jesus. 
they had to prove this in a miraculous way, that Christ's gospel that we got from the, uh, the, the apostles has the same power. At their exorcisms were signs of the truth. Nowhere, nowhere, nowhere are Christians told they need to talk to Satan. Satan does not likely know that you exist. He is not a bad God compared to God as being the good God. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere all at once. He can be at one place at one time. Before Christ, you don't really hear the need for exorcisms. And if you read the, the letters that are given to the churches after the Gospels, you won't find any commands to give exorcisms. You just won't. What you will find is how we are to be guarded by Christ. We trust his word. The way to be freed from the influence of Satan is by trusting in Christ, obeying his commands, and trusting his promises. If you want to be freed from the dominion of Satan that's going to be destroyed by Jesus, you have faith in Christ. If you want a person to be rescued from evil, you evangelize them. Don't try to cast a demon out of them. The way that you once were in the kingdom of Satan and got out by faith in Christ, that's how everyone gets out of the kingdom of darkness, is by trusting in Christ, the Holy One who has defeated Satan. This passage wants us to know very, very clearly as well. We shouldn't, we shouldn't miss it before we go on. That Capernaum knew very clearly that Jesus was the snake crusher. He was the Messiah. They don't want anybody to notice. Mark doesn't want anybody to think that Capernaum had an excuse. They all knew about this. And yet Capernaum absolutely rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't believe. They didn't have faith in Christ. They saw the sign. They thought that was fantastic, but they had no interest in what the sign pointed to. That Christ is the one who could rescue them from their sin and make them one of God's children. They were not interested in that. They loved the idea of signs and wonders, but they didn't really love what Christ came to actually do. Dear church, we do not need to fear Satan's power. We don't. We ought to fear sin. We ought to fear, because that's how he attacks. And we have a solution for that. What is our solution for that? Christ promises that he will always give a way out. When you are tempted, he will always give you a way out. You always have a way out. You can always, with the Spirit of God's power, say, no, I will do what God wants. Every single time I have been tempted and given in, I had the ability to not say yes because I had Christ in me. I had the Holy Spirit. We have a solution. And when we do sin, what does John tell us? If you do sin, he is faithful and just. Confess your sin to him. And he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. 
there was one solution to the problem of Adam joining the whole race, human race into rebellion, the rebellion of Satan. And that was the solution of the Holy One of God. That Jesus lived in our place without sin. That Jesus died in our place and he rose from the dead. That is the only way to be rescued from the domain of sin which Christ comes to destroy. So those who are not in Christ are not simply neutral. This is one of the points of the passage. If you are not in Christ, you're not simply neutral. You are one of God's enemies, just like Satan is. And you are in need of rescue, and he's here to give it to you. Three points of application right before we close. First, being in the church and around the word is not enough. Simply believing that the word of God is true is not enough. You could still be part of the works of darkness if scripture can't correct you. If you're more interested in holding to your own ideas than being corrected by the word of God. If you're only concerned about the sins of others rather than your own sin. And if you don't really want to be God's child and trust that Jesus alone can make you God's child, then you're more like the Pharisees and you need Christ to free you from the work of Satan. You don't need an exorcism. You need salvation. And that is given by faith and repentance. Simply being in the church is not enough. That comes by faith in Christ. The second thing is that Satan's power to accuse is removed by Christ's cross. God had forgiven many people in the Old Testament. He had a lot of people. He had a lot of people he called his children. People who he said their sins are forgiven. David sang about having your sins forgiven. The people of the Old Testament, the Old Testament church, they, they sang about and they loved the forgiveness of God, that their sins were forgiven. And Satan stood as their accuser and said, how can you forgive them? You're punishing me for my sin. How come you're not punishing their sin? Their sin hasn't been paid. Their sin hasn't been paid. Their sin has been On repeat, Satan is saying these things. Their sin hasn't been paid. And Christ is the answer to that. Because on the cross, that was God's answer to Satan's accusation. Now Satan can no longer say that God's people's sin hasn't been paid. It was paid in full. That's what Jesus said when he said it is finished. And God proved Christ's words, it is finished by rising him from the dead. Dear Christian, if your faith is in Christ, do not believe the accusations of the devil. Your sin is paid for. And God will never bring it back up. He will never recall that payment from Christ. He will never question whether that payment was good enough. Your sin has been paid in full. Christ silences the accuser of the saints. And our third, third point I want us to be left with is that the church will one day be rescued from the presence of Satan. He now prowls around like a lion, seeking whom he would devour. He loves to take the church's assurance off of Christ and make them worry that maybe Christ isn't good enough. And he does that. He's permitted to do that. But he's only permitted to do that to show how good Christ is at holding people who are under attack. 
But there will be one day when he will come and banish that wicked serpent and all of his deeds and all of the sins off of this earth and we will dwell with him, Christ, in this world with all the sin and rebellion removed, all those whom he died for, he will enjoy an eternal life with. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not called us to crush the head of the serpent. That would have been way too much for us. In Adam, we tried and we failed. But that you have given us your own son. And before he destroyed, before he destroyed all the sin and sinners off the earth, we are grateful that he came to first die for us. Because we know we too would have been destroyed and rightly damned for our sin. Lord, let us be people who love who love Christ's authority, that he is the king, that we would love to be under his kingship because we know that he died to make us his own. Lord, I pray that this, um, that we would hear your word. And rather than being fascinated with distractions, that we would follow your commands, that we would trust your promises, and that we would live as people who have been redeemed by the Holy One of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.